radical look at Scottish history with Stuart McHardy. Part 6. The Birth of Scotland. Part 1. According to the extremely limited sources we've got for the 7th century Scotland, which mainly consists of annals from Irish monasteries, the earliest copies of which date for hundreds of years later, before the Synod of Whitby in 664, the Northumbrians had already started expanding north. They're said to have got as far as Edinburgh by 638, and the annals mention a siege of Dunedin, nowadays Edinburgh, and many historians have therefore assumed a Northumbrian takeover of the Lothians at this period. But things are not that clear. The heroic poem Egadodin, describing the battle between the Gododin of Elodian and men from the south had been written only 40 years earlier. That poem, incidentally, has the earliest known reference to the great warrior hero Arthur. Now, we also have references to the Northumbrians taking over Regid, an area roughly corresponding to Galloway, sometime between 660 and 680. And in this period, the Northumbrian king Egfrith is said to have inflicted a heavy defeat on the Picts. That was in 671, somewhere in central Scotland, where a river was said to have run red with Pictish blood. Problem here is we have just one reference to this battle in the life of the Northumbrian Bishop Wilfred, with no corroborating evidence. Now, some historians have extrapolated this to mean that the Picts, possibly in Fife, had revolted against the Northumbrians who had conquered them. Whether any of the Picts were under total Northumbrian control after the siege of Dunedin is as yet hardly proven. But it is clear that the Northumbrians were set on conquering all of their neighbours if they could. While given the scarcity of contemporary records, the situation in the Lothians will probably remain unclear, we are told that in 681 an Anglian bishop, Trumwine, was installed at Abercorn on the south banks of the Forth, just west of Queensferry. Now this can certainly be seen as a consolidation of Northumbrian power, but things soon began to change again. In 685, Egfrith again came north and met with a Pictish force led by Bridai MacBillia in a battle referred to variously as Nechtensmere, Lingarden and Dunnechton. It has long been thought that this battle took place just south of Forfar at Dunnechton, but recently the idea has been put forward that in fact it took place somewhere near Aviemore. What records we do have tell us that Egfrith was lured into a well-planned ambush and killed in what was a major victory for the Picts. For the details of this event, we are reliant again on a single source, this time Bede's history of the English church and people, though the event itself is mentioned in some of the Irish annals. It is believed that this is the battle represented on the great cross stone at Abilemno, east of Forfar though the stone itself is dated to considerably later. Recently, the suggested period of carving the Pictish stones has been pushed back to the 4th century, but as I've pointed out in the pagan symbols of the Picts, many of the symbols can be seen as representing at least potential cultural continuity with much earlier periods, a concept further stressed in the forthcoming Stones of the Ancestors, written with archaeoastronomer Dougie Scott. However, the Abilemno Man Stone is a clear depiction of a battle and has generally been interpreted as fitting in well with what is known of the battle itself. One intriguing possibility that has been raised is that the stone itself was inspired by a heroic poem, perhaps similar to Egadodin. 
Heroic poetry would definitely have been part of the culture of the pits, even if we have no extant examples. Historians have generally accepted that this was a crushing defeat for the Northumbrians, and very soon after this, Bishop Trumwine abandoned the new foundation of Abercorn and headed south. The fact that he went as far south as Whitby may suggest that the effect of Dunnikin was to force the Northumbrians into falling back from the Forth and possibly even deserting Lothian. If so, the underlying tribal structure of the Gnothen may well have re-established itself, but the Northumbrians would return. Now, some commentators have suggested that the Battle of Dunnikin laid the foundation for the eventual formation of Scotland, as it put a stop to Northumbrian expansion. But this is oversimplistic. The Northumbrians came north again, and in 711, Bede tells us that the Northumbrian Berthfrith fought with the Picts in a battle, in which Irish sources tell us the Picts were slaughtered, somewhere near Stirling. Clearly, the Northumbrians were still a threat. In 717, Nechton, king of the Picts, expelled the last of the Columban monks from the east, effectively completing the process of establishing the supremacy of the Roman church which had started at Whitby half a century earlier. How much this can be seen as reflective of Northumbrian power is unclear, though it appears likely that by now Nechton, and probably the leaders of the Scots and Argyll, were learning just how useful literate monks could be as organisers. Now, according to the Irish annals, there were a series of what were apparently inter-tribal battles among the Scots of Dalriada from 717 to 721. They had three main kin groups, the Kennel Angus, the Kennel Gabarin, and the Kennel Lorne. Kennel here apparently meaning something like clan or tribe, each with its own territory. This resulted in Dunkard of the Kennel Gabarin coming out on top. Similarly, in the decade following 720, various of these annals report a series of battles amongst the Picts, which apparently culminated in Angus, becoming king of the Picts in 729. The constant use of the term king is problematical in that we are still in a period where society was essentially tribal, and even if it does seem to be nitpicking, we might be better off thinking of Angus becoming something more like high chief. The monks writing the annals may well have understood such fine differences, but the term king carries an awful lot of baggage which has undoubtedly influenced a great many later historians. That said, we can assume that these struggles are evidence of a move towards greater centralisation of power amongst both the Picts and the Scots, brought on by the need to resist repeated invasions from the south. While it is clear that the various battles have generally been seen as dynastic, we have no idea whether they were large-scale pitch battles or something more akin to the intertribal skirmishes, which happened regularly in association with cattle raiding. While chiefs traditionally had groups of warriors who accompanied them whenever they were off clan lands, right up to the end of clan society, we have no real evidence of how large the war bands of the period were. Large battles like that of Dunnikin would most likely have involved hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of warriors. Now these invasions for the south continued with Yadbert of Northumbria waging war on the Pictish people in the 740s, then invading what is now modern Ayrshire a decade later before attacking the Strathclyde British stronghold of Dumbarton. The whole period is murky, as we have little more than occasional battles and the passing of notable individuals, usually churchmen, 
being mentioned in the annals, and a clear picture may never emerge. It does seem clear, however, that the underlying tribal structure of society across Scotland carried on, and that however the function of kingship was organised, it must have reflected this. In the second half of the century, Northumbria was likewise driven by apparent dynastic squabbles, and the complexity of the picture is illustrated by the fact that there were apparently three different kings of the Picts in the years between 780 and 789. We then have the striking figure of Constantine, who, we are told, was on the throne from 789 to 820. In the latter years of his reign, he was also king of Dalriada, or of the Scots, a point which underlines the ongoing relationships between the Picts and Scots, which, though at time would be antagonistic, could also be very close. We must also be aware that, particularly when it comes to royal dynasties, truth is secondary to power. And the creation of pedigrees by kings, as with all so-called aristocrats, is generally driven by political necessity, which, put another way, is self-interest. Now, Constantine reigned for 30 years and was followed by his brother, or maybe half-brother, Angus, who ruled for a further 14 years, and this can be seen as beginning to set a pattern of dynastic stability. But both their reigns were troubled by a new set of invaders who were to have a major effect on Scotland's history and culture, the Norsemen. Next time, The Birth of Scotland, Part 2, The Vikings.